All right, welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of the Brown Not Black podcast. I am your co-host, Nick. And it's me, your favorite goth cousin, Harrison. <laughs> Anyways, we're here today. We're all very excited. We have not one, but two, count them, two guests here on our show. I'm going to let them introduce themselves first. We're obviously going to be talking about a ton of things today. Our first guest is highly touted. Welcome to the show, Bronte. Hi, I'm Bronte. I'm from Texas and I'm Asian. Oh, and I'm a woman, so. And you're a woman. I check a lot of boxes. Oh, and I'm not straight. And she's not straight. Awesome. That is our quota (laughs) for the year. And our other guest is Bronte's partner, Joe. Hey, I'm Joe. I am originally from the Philippines, but I suppose I'm what you might call a third culture kid in that of my 27 years here on this planet, I've only spent two of those in the Philippines. And so I have uh, an experience of, I suppose, having conflicting identities. Whoa, what? What does a third culture kid mean? Yeah, so a third culture kid essentially is where, well, in my case, um, I might use myself as an example here. So both of my parents are Filipino, and I would most, I guess, closely identify as being Filipino. But I never lived in the Philippines until like my last few years of high school. So I was sort of grown up around, I suppose. Um, and so my experiences growing up aren't that of someone who spent their whole life in the Philippines. Wow, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that vocabulary with us, because I think that may have been the first time I heard that term too. And sure, hearing you describe that sounds a lot like my perspective and Nick's perspective, except replace Philippines with Guyana, where we lived in the States and we grew up in the States, but we so closely tie our identities, like our cultural identities to Guyana. Joe, you were born in the Philippines, is that correct? Yeah, so I was born in the Philippines, but my parents were living in Switzerland at the time. Uh, just my mom flew back to the Philippines to have me. And so I sort of spent the first, I guess, two, two to three years of my life in Switzerland, then we moved to Korea for a bit, and then we moved to Indonesia for a bit after that, and then we moved to China, which is where um, up until the UK I'd spent the most of my life in, so I spent about five years in China. Uh, then moved back to Switzerland for another two years, and then moved to the Philippines for my last two years of high school, and I've been in the UK for the last seven years or so. So four years I guess, studying up north, and then I moved down to London uh, for the last three years or so to work. Damn, you are fantastically well-traveled, sir. I should hope so. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's an interesting one, though, right? I guess being a third-culture kid and who you find yourself becoming friends with. I mean, I've generally found that my identity is rooted more in people rather than places. So I don't necessarily feel the urge to, I guess, visit any of the countries that, I, that I've lived in. But, you know, I have, I guess, long-standing friends whom I've known for the longest time who I'll sort of see as home, I guess, in a way. Wow, I love that. My identity is based in people rather than places. That's a really beautiful way to look at things, and I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing your your biz with us. Yeah, no worries. I would like to hear more about Bronte's background as well. I was about to make the case for like, hey, because these are two new guests and our show is a lot about culture and like what your identity means. I would like Bronte to divulge a little bit more about herself, too. Okay, well, I am living in New York right now, obviously, but I grew up in Texas. My parents are both Chinese, 
and they immigrated to the States in the 90s. And I grew up, like, I don't know, all of us, in a predominantly white space. I think I was one of, like, three Asian kids in my elementary school. And then I went to elementary, middle, and high school with all the same people. So my middle school and high school were much more diverse. But yeah, most of my childhood was very Asian-less. I didn't really grow up with a lot of Asian friends. So I think I was very removed from... Like your home environment and the environment around you were sort of at odds or different? I don't know if I would say it was necessarily my home environment, but I just didn't really associate with a lot of people who looked like me. And I think even now I I don't really have a lot of Asian friends, which isn't a good or a bad thing. I'm just gonna, you know, say that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess I grew up in the South. That was a trip. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here's my question for the both of you. You grew up obviously not in your home country or country of descent. Was Filipino culture, was Chinese culture still heavily implemented in your households? Yeah, I would say so. Although my parents made the conscious decision to raise me speaking English rather than Filipino, Tagalog rather, uh, in this household, just because it was the more useful language to know. Mm. So, right. And so they sort of kept Tagalog as their kind of secret language if they wanted to talk about something to each other without me or my sister knowing about it, which is handy, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, grew up, grew up eating like Filipino food, grew up eating rice for every meal. I love Pretty that. much. So strong. And, you know, and we'd try to visit the Philippines every year. So we'd have a really long summer holiday in the Philippines every year, essentially. So I still got to, I guess, be exposed to, I guess, the real Philippines, um, you know, visiting grandparents, family and everything. You know, but that obviously isn't the same as growing up in the Philippines, making friends in the Philippines and, you know, getting to know the Philippines as a Filipino who's grown up in the Philippines. So um, when I ended up actually moving to the Philippines, like for my last two years of high school, it was a really weird experience of almost being an expat in your, in your own country. Yeah, that to me sounds like something I had said, I believe, in our first episode. There are times where you might feel like you're too, and I'm using my words, I felt like I was too American for some Guyanese people in my family or in the country, but to Guyanese for certain American crowds. And I think that translates sometimes, you know, when you're yeah, exactly. not born in where your parents were from, you just feel sort of like, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Because mm. you, you try to sort of latch on to that identity, you know, as being Filipino. So um, if our ass was from like in school, you know, I'm, I'm Filipino. Um, and then when it came to actually moving to the Philippines, that sort of weird experience of not actually speaking Tagalog that well, I mean, being able to understand it, but people asking me where I'm from, me saying, I'm from the Philippines, and then just the amusement and my <laughs> lack of Tagalog skills. Right. It's it's tricky. It's an awkward wow. situation to be in sometimes. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, w- I would say that I still have a strong Filipino identity. love a Filipino breakfast, so I try to have, you know, Filipino breakfasts every once in a while. It's sort of, you know, something that ties me back and keeps me grounded to, to home, I guess. That's so excellent. Cuisine is such a great way to stay close to your culture. I resonate with that one. We will get into that uh, later on in the episode. That's that's going to be the lighter part of the episode a little bit later on. <laughs> of course. But, okay, so giving it over to, to Bronte, was there a lot of, uh, you know, Chinese customs, Chinese cultures 
recognized in your household in, in Texas? I guess I grew up speaking Chinese. That would kind of be the most... Well, I went to Chinese school and we oh. celebrated Chinese New Year. But I would say that as far as Chinese customs, besides the fact that we celebrated Chinese holidays, I, I think that was, you know, kind of the extent of it. Oh, I guess we ate Chinese food, but it wasn't really like Chinese food. It was just like what you could kind of whip together so... with the resources available in Texas, kind of. Well, there there's a huge Chinese population in Houston, mm. so there was never a struggle of finding the stuff that my parents ate or was used to eating when they were in China. But I guess I'm I'm thinking that you guys are more thinking of like whether we had other cultural things in our household. Well, what I'm just asking, well, I guess what both of us were asking is like, what did it look like for you just with your cultural identity against the backdrop of being in America? Because I've known people within my own families or people from Guyana, for example, but not limited to that, like other Caribbean peoples, some Hispanic peoples who will travel to the States and after a certain amount of time, they sort of abandon all of the country that they once were from and, how shall I say, become like more American than an American. And I've seen that happen a few times and I just wanted to know where you guys were at with your cultural identities and how you felt and where you came from in that sense just so like I and I guess all of the listeners can get a greater picture of what you guys or who you guys are well I think that okay I I think I understand what you're asking um for me personally I think that I am I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm whitewashed because I don't think I try to be, you know, quote unquote white, but I'm definitely Americanized or Westernized compared to, you know, Chinese people from China. Yeah. And that would check out because, you know, you spent so much time in the States. But I guess with regard to my parents, I think the difference for people who immigrate to the U.S., from more westernized countries and people who immigrate to the U.S. from, you know, like China or I, I don't know if I would say necessarily some other Asian countries because a lot of them are very westernized already. But I think when my parents immigrated to the U.S., they didn't really even know how to assimilate with the culture because it was just so different and they didn't necessarily know English well enough to kind of pick up on the nuances of just like existing in the um, western space pretty much like I I feel like I'm picking up what you're putting down like this isn't like a unique story like it happens to so many people and it's really admirable like for the people who come out here and try to make something happen when they're so culture shocked. I have a question for everyone here. How many times in your life have you brought home like a like a white friend, an American friend, and they said your house smells weird? Because it's happened to me a couple times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely happened before. I wasn't allowed to bring home white friends. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> for legal <laughs> reasons, I'm kidding. That's actually never happened to me, no. 
But I have had people make fun of my food when I brought it to like school as lunch. Right, when you bring it to the office or something and you heat it up in the microwave yeah. and everyone's like, yo, what is that smell? And I'm like, this is what my house smells like all the time. I don't even smell anything. That's why when I cook cultural dishes, because I do keep the, the bond strong by cooking like curries and all this other great stuff. I burn incense and sage my house afterwards just because, you know. Like you're purging evil spirits, you know, the ancestors. <laughs> purging the culture. A little bit of that, a little bit of, I just want this place to smell like church, you <laughs> know. <laughs> Banishing the ancestors. So. <laughs> Be gone. The depths, yeah. Well, thank you both for giving your backstories and perspectives. Now, let's just dive straight into one of the topics of discussion for today. Discrimination. This is an episode that Nick and I wanted to do for a bit. It was like one of the many things on our backlog. And we figured now more than ever is such an excellent time to address the large topic of discrimination in lieu of the very recent events that have happened in the United States, specifically Georgia, and in a larger sense over the last year, with the explosive increase in discrimination against Asian American and Pacific Islanders, not only in America, but pretty much the entire world, but especially America. From our perspective, we would just like to as a podcast, Harrison and I, and Harrison, tell me if you feel differently, but I'm sure you feel the same. Mm. We stand with our Asian brothers and sisters throughout all of this violence, throughout all of this white supremacy that is very prevalent in both the U.S. as well as worldwide. And there's just no time, especially now, for minorities to be pit against one another. We all experience, not the same, but we all experience discrimination in some form or the other. And we fully stand with each other. I disagree with one thing you said, Nick. God, what? You said minor we minorities need to stand together. We are not the minority. Because understand that if mm, all of us like that. hold our hands and unite together and say enough discrimination, enough hate and violence, we are the majority, of course. I like that. Thank you for correcting me on that. Absolutely. But yeah, discrimination is just like... Unjust, prejudicial treatment of different peoples. And I have felt discriminated against. I know Nick has felt discriminated against. We've talked about that at great lengths. And we wanted to kind of air out what it looks like from our point of views. Like what being discriminated against is like for us as brown people. And I know it might be inflammatory or really invasive to ask. But this is the podcast for that. If you guys would like to share your perspectives as just any hat you want to wear, like Asian slash Pacific Islander background peoples, Londoners, European, New Yorkers, whatever it might be, like if there were times in your life where you got treated differently, you got looked at differently, go ahead and just like air it out. Because the more we talk about our problems and the more we identify the way certain things look, we can get better educated and stop stuff or prevent things from ever happening in the first place. I'm going to go first. Talk your shit. Okay. So I think, at least in America, discrimination against Asian people doesn't really look the same way as it does for black and brown people. I think 
Asian discrimination is much more subtle. It's not so much that there's, you know, directly people committing acts of violence against Asian people. It's more exclusionary. So, you know, nobody was beating me up in school. It was just that I was not a part of the society that I inhabited. I, it wasn't that anyone was explicitly mean to me. It's mostly just that I didn't exist. What you just said has me thinking about mm -hmm. a term I heard recently describing mm -hmm. discrimination against Asian Americans. And I believe that term was Asian Americans are seen as a perpetual foreigner sometimes. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate with you at all? Because I was reading about this and to me, I, I kind of saw it like there will be times where people will look at someone who's very different and just think there's no way you could be like me. There's no way you could be an American. Do you think that's that matches up with how you had felt at times in your life or continue to feel? So the term perpetual foreigner doesn't only apply to Asian people. But, I mean, immigrants that come from Western countries, especially ones that look white, don't have too much trouble immigrating because, you know, give them a couple generations, they will be white. Exactly, yeah. But with Asian people and Black people, like, immigrating isn't that easy because we obviously don't look white. So, I, yeah, I wouldn't just... First of all, I wouldn't say that the perpetual foreigner label applies solely to Asians, but it's a really good description of how American society treats immigrants who don't look white. I mean, the label of the model minority is just another way to oppress black and brown people. Yeah. Isn't that one crazy? That's one I've read about to a certain extent. Because, like you said, Asian peoples have been looked at in this country as a quote-unquote model minority. And it's really twisted because it's a way of applying like a white supremacist idea to simultaneously hold one group in a slightly higher regard and oppress them and keep down another set of groups all in one move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, yeah, exactly. Um, it serves to dehumanize Asian people and oppress black and brown people. Um, that's exactly, that's exactly correct. Damn. I think with a lot of Asian people, they so desperately want to assimilate into American culture that they just take the model minority label in stride. Mm. They're like, this is fine. As long as I can be somewhat closer to being American, this is fine with me. But a lot of Asians forget that the label, just as easily as it's been given to you, it can be taken away. As soon as it's no longer convenient for, well, as long as it's no longer convenient in the eyes of white supremacy for Asians to be a tool against oppressing black and brown people, they can take that perceived privilege away damn amen like i resonate with that one we gotta think about what does it really mean to be american and why have we let 
being a white person or looking white or acting quote-unquote white, why have we let that be the baseline for so long? Western imperialism. Yeah. Oh, I know. There's an answer to the question. Thank you for answering it. Like, it's just like, we need to tear that shit down with expeditious haste. Yeah, I I agree. I think that I don't I don't know if anyone would disagree. I think there's a few people who would disagree. They might not listen to this podcast, though. The racists, the Nazis. I don't think they're I don't think they're searching up this podcast (laughs) specifically. (laughs) Pacifically, I don't I don't talk to them. (laughs) They don't exist for me. Damn. Well, here's an interesting question for Joe. Technically, with how much traveling you've done, is he not a perpetual foreigner? Just always being a in a foreign country? Perpetual. Well, that's kind of how I feel, Isn't right? Kind of yeah. So I guess this ties back to your earlier question about identity. So I guess I haven't lived in a country long enough to, I guess, abandon my Philippineness. So it's sort of what I have, and it's like the only form of, I guess, cultural identity that I've been able to salvage. I mean, as of last year, the UK is actually the country that I've lived the longest in, which is like seven years at this point, right? But I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call myself English, right? In the same way that, you know, before then, like the, like China would have been the country that I've spent the most of my life in, right? Five years, but I wouldn't call myself Chinese by any stretch. So... I suppose, yeah, like as a, as a third culture kid, as someone who's grown up around um, and as someone who's ended up in a place that isn't the Philippines, yeah, I do feel like a professional foreigner. I mean, I'll be eligible to apply to, to become a British citizen like in two years, but um, I won't feel, I guess, any more British than I do now. That's excellent. Joe, I just need to make this very clear. I fucking love your voice and your accent. <laughs> Whoa. Are you coming on to him right now? No. I I think so. I think so. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny because Ronte says that I don't have an accent, but maybe that's because Joe doesn't have no, an he accent. No, he has an it's accent. A... You can hear it. It's it's not it's not like super prevalent, but it's like there on certain words. It's really cool. It's between. It's like somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I think. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I love that shit. Yeah, on that point, actually, um, I guess the thing that Brits love to talk about, um, is where you're from in the UK. Like when you're meet someone at a pub, you'll sort of ask them, like, oh, where are you from? And people tend to assume an American uh, when they first meet me, um, because my accent most closely resembles an American accent to a British person, which has always been really interesting. And then I have to sort of do the whole thing of explaining that I'm not American, I'm Filipino, but I do have family in the US. My mom, dad, and sister live in California, but, you know, I'm not American. So that's sort of a conversation that I've, you know, you sort of have a routine, uh, and a sort of, yeah, a sort of script that you go down to explain your background, you know, in as, you know, succinct a way as possible. Yeah, we talked about that in episode one when they ask you that question and you can see that they're digging for something deeper. So then you hit them with your, you know, your sales pitch. Oh, I'm from here, but I'm actually from here. Well, you see the triangle trade. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can't go one episode without mentioning the triangle trade. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, it's always on my mind. Well, Bronte shared her perspective on, like, what discrimination looked like, and it was, like, feeling like an other. I'll share my brief perspective really quick, and then we can just pass the torch around, I guess. I feel like almost, not every day, but almost every time I'm ever shopping somewhere that is kind of, how shall I say, in a very white community or something, or somewhere with not a lot of other black or brown peoples, I will just get looked at uh, a lot, kind of, like, people will glance over their shoulders if I'm in the same aisle as them, and it's just like, I know I'm very attractive, it's just kind of like, 
are you looking at me because I am dressed funny, attractive, or because I'm brown? I don't know. I was going to say it's because of your amazing hair, but go off. I don't know. I'm usually wearing some shit. But yeah, I do I do feel like that strange look on me sometimes. I have been... There have been times where people will make faces at me, and they're usually white people making those faces at me, and it piles up after a while, where I start to question, like, are people looking at me, or are they looking at, like, the brown person in my skin? There have been a few times where I've been to parts of the American South where I felt, like, wicked uncomfortable, <laughs> just, like, from people looking at me holding hands with, like, a white person. <laughs> and I don't know, discrimination for me has always just been, like, people's body language changes when I'm around them. Even if it's something as simple as just staring, even. Yeah, body language goes so far. Like, if you're staring yeah. at me, if you're glancing at me, looking at whatever, it's it's pretty irritating to have to yeah. deal with that and to be conscious of my melanin constantly. But, eh. Yeah, I became extremely conscious of this when I moved to Switzerland. So up, up until then, I'd spent like 15, like the entirety of my life essentially in Asia, um, where being Asian was obviously the norm. So, yeah, I moved to Basel, which is on the border of France and Germany, um, which is extremely white. You lived in Switzerland? Yeah, I lived in, Switzerland. in Switzerland. That's right. Wow. <laughs> Inside joke. Exotic. <laughs> but, yeah, it was something that I had to get used to, I suppose. Um, just, like, while waiting for a tram, like, I'd see just people staring, like, from the trains. Just purely based on the fact that they hadn't seen an Asian person ever. And, you know, that was something to get used to. Um, and I think this is definitely... Like affected my choices and where to eventually settle down. I mean, where I went to university uh, in the north of England was a lot more white as well. And some of the places I interviewed at were in predominantly white towns where, you know, it was obvious that I was the only non-white person like in that specific town on that when I'd like interview for a place. So I've eventually ended up settling, in, settling down in London, which, you know, obviously extremely cosmopolitan, um, extremely diverse. So I guess a place of comfort. It's almost I can, I can latch on to I guess being a Londoner as a form of identity. I guess in the same way that you might identify as being a New Yorker and you know all those sort of things that are tied to that. That is a beautiful wow. thing about these metropolitan areas is that you can make a little slice for yourself. It's a place where even if you don't exactly fit in, you still fit in. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So I suppose, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd call myself a Londoner at this point, but that doesn't make me not Filipino. Mm. Damn, he's dropping quotes like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> this is crazy. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> the discrimination I've faced, I'll touch upon briefly because uh, being someone who's, you know, black presenting, I feel like most people know by now, I would hope, what that looks like and how people, you know, I hope, you know, white allies and et cetera are, um, actively working on, you know, not doing that. But I will share one uh, anecdote or story from my childhood that that really opened my eyes for the first time as to how real this shit actually is. I was in high school. I was hanging out with three or four friends. Most of them were most of them were black, and they were at my house. And I lived within walking distance of my high school, so they were leaving to catch the five thirty late bus to go home. And rather than take a 10 minute walk they took an eight minute shortcut by hopping my neighbor's fence like going through his backyard and hopping the fence to get to the street and one of them forgot his calculator at my house so instead of walking back around he decided to hop the fence again 
and was met. And keep in mind, my neighbors were, you know, two white people. He hops the fence to, you know, get back over, come to my house, grab his calculator, and is instead met by my male neighbor aiming a double barrel shotgun at him. Because the first time they'd hopped the fence, his wife was home and she'd seen them and she didn't know what was going on. So she called him and then called the police. And, you know, keep in mind, these are high schoolers wearing backpacks, but I don't really blame her for that because who the hell are these people that are in my yard? What the hell is going on? So he came back, got grabbed the shotgun because he thought his home was getting invaded or something like that. Um, everything worked out. You know, he just got brought back to my house by a cop and they were like, oh, this is story check out. Yep. Gave him back his calculator and he got driven home. My dad came home, heard the entire story from my neighbor. Again, I didn't really know what had happened until the cop showed up at my door with my friend. And my dad came home, heard the whole story. And basically, and keep in mind, I was obese in high school, very fat. My dad picks me up by my shoulders and pushes me against the wall. And with what I at the time had thought was just pure anger in his eyes said, don't fucking play like that. Don't ever fucking play with the police or anything like that. They will shoot you on sight. That's full stop. That's yeah. that. And why I share that story is because it took me a couple of years, but when, when Michael Brown was murdered, I looked back at that story and realized that what was in my dad's eyes wasn't, wasn't anger. It was, it was just straight fear because he had immigrated to this country and then immediately seen the LA riots, you know, Rodney King, all that. He's like, he's been seeing this for years. And again, my dad is, his mother was of Chinese descent. So again, my dad does not look black, brown. My dad looks, you know, more Chinese than, than really anything, to be quite honest. And for him to just be so scared because his, his eldest son is black passing him for him to just be so scared of the prospect that I could just be in the wrong place, wrong time and just die by the hands of someone who's supposed to be protecting us was really what what opened my eyes for the first time and obviously i've had a bunch of stories at at uconn especially you know a mostly white college where it was late at night i was coming back from the gym you know i didn't live that far but you know if a white girl was walking towards me on the street she would just cross the street even though she lived on that side of the street happened a bunch of times and that's those are my stories of you know discrimination that's, that's a really harrowing story because you learned that discrimination is so intense for someone that looks like you that your own father was attempting to protect you in the most in a very explicit and direct and confrontational way but it it's it is that serious is the thing though yeah like the discrimination is serious but the consequences of discrimination are what you need to be very very wary of true. very true that's like in a similar way this isn't my story, but a moment that I kind of fully awoken to how bad discrimination is for someone who is in a black or brown body in the States was back in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was shot dead. I thought about that and I was like, wait a minute, I can no longer even process it. Like that was the moment for me where I realized like, yeah, if you do something even innocuous, it can be a death sentence for you. Like, you just have to be black in the wrong place at the wrong time in this country, and you're done. Uh, and that's why, Butterfly Effect, you end up, like, recording a podcast about why we need to be better about things. Trauma, boys. We ain't it. Well, that's, yeah, those are our, you know, very brief, those are our very brief stories. 
Joe would love to hear the, I mean, you've been to just so many countries. Has the discrimination been prevalent in all of these countries? Obviously, you mentioned Switzerland. Has it been more serious in some countries with more serious consequences? I would love um, if you'd like to elaborate on that. Well, I suppose the way that you're discriminated against, um, like in the East versus the West, like it does differ, um, especially as a Filipino. So in Asia, I suppose Filipinos are generally seen as being, I guess, of the maid and like in a subservient way, I guess. So interesting. for example, like in Hong Kong and Singapore, you'll find that you'll have a lot of Filipinas who emigrate there to work as maids and then send money home to the Philippines. And so the stereotype is kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, you have a Filipino maid and everything. So often when I travel to Hong Kong, right, I'd sort of be asked about, you know, my plans to return, you know, because of the risks of me sort of overstaying my visit in Hong Kong and trying to, you know, kind of settle there almost in the same way that you might, you know, um, you know, expect like a tourist to, you know, in the same way, there are all these, you know, fences on people visiting the US to avoid them from overstaying their visas. So I've certainly experienced a lot of that in Asia as a Filipino, essentially, because, yeah, as I've said, we have, uh, I guess that's how we're seen, almost. So so people make assumptions on, um, about you based on the way you look. Damn. Yeah, or your passport even as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this is really just, wow. you know, at passport control, essentially, seeing a Filipino passport and all the sort of connotations of that. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is interesting. Versus like, um, my experience in the West has been, I guess, more of the model minority type of thing where you know example of that is like you know i've, I've been at a bar and then i've had someone approach me and sort of ask like oh, like how many instruments do you do you play you know as a sort of joke right what wait expand on that what do, you, what do you mean how many instruments do you play well i guess the stereotype being that you know asians are sort of smarter and play lots of instruments and stuff oh geez right i don't so, know if i've heard that one what the hell hold on hold on joe how many instruments do you play Wait, Nick, hold on. Joe plays a lot of instruments. So That's why I asked. Bad, bad example. That's why that was really tricky, because I was like, yeah, I, I play through instruments, but like, it's not because I'm Asian. It's just because I'm into music like that, I guess. Oh, okay. Well, that's awesome. Good for you. I only asked that question not to be a fucking prick, even though I did come across that way, but I had FaceTime with Joe and I had seen a bunch of instruments behind him. That is so wild that that's a stereotype. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, or just generally assuming that you're like good at maths, right? Um, you know, stuff like that. So I mean, you know, to, to caveat that, there, there are tons of there there are tons of stupid Asians, right? <laughs> I'm not a fantastically. I'm one of them, so yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fantastically <laughs> a clever Asian, so <laughs> that's kind of bad because you know it's just let us you know stupid Asians be stupid, right? And let us let us be ourselves let stupid asians be stupid thank you if you leave here today with nothing else that's praxis let it be that <laughs> honestly <laughs> i mean i think this ties into i guess the types of well nowadays i guess i'm not sure i think it was more i think western society was generally more open in the 90s and 80s like to immigration but it's quite quite difficult to move like i'm trying desperately to move to new york to be with bronte and we're finding that nearly impossible um at the moment but generally, I think what you find is that, like in white upper middle class schools and jobs, uh, you'll tend to be exposed to richer Asians, right? So I'm I'm going to be very upfront with the you know the fact that you know I, I had quite a privileged upbringing, right? Living around the world, you know, going to you know international schools um, and going to university in the UK, and this sort of ties to that you know model minority myth, right? That the one percent of us that are 
wealthy are the only ones that exist to Westerners. And, you know, even, I guess, the wealthy Asians that exist to Westerners are sort of treated as pets almost, or, you know, as, as things to look at almost. But, you know, the, the rest of us are really invisible, I think, to the Western world. I don't know, Joe. I don't think that the rest... I, I think that all Asians are kind of invisible, and the only time they are visible is when some shit like COVID happens, and it's like, oh. Mm. Or, or when some violence happens towards black or brown people then they you know drag in the asians to mm. like oh you should be more like asian people and then you wouldn't be dying but it's like asian people only exist when they need to i don't know if i would say that that's something that is driven by wealth well what bronte just said to circle back to the conversation we had about how the model minority myth is harmful. It is also a form of like victim blaming against black and brown peoples where it's just like, Hey, if like you had just said, it's like, Oh, if only you were more like them, you wouldn't have these problems. And it's like, well, if only you didn't redline me into these districts and like <laughs> prevented me from attaining generational wealth, I wouldn't <laughs> have these problems. If only. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about that, though. Like, what about, like, every major city in the U.S. has Chinatown, right? Is that, this, and I'm I'm truly asking a genuine question here, is that the same as, as redlining and marginalizing these communities? Like, how do those communities just e exist? I'm going to assume that's a question for me, because Joe <laughs> isn't Chinese. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I'm a quarter Chinese, so... Excuse me, but yeah, more as oh, a, as the most sorry. Chinese person here than Gilfrey <laughs> to speak on behalf of uh, us I less Chinese if I people. I would necessarily say that Chinatowns are redlining because Chinese people don't necessarily live in Chinatown. Um, mm. Chinatown is more of an area where there are a lot of shops or restaurants. But, I mean, I guess in New York, there are a lot of Chinese people that live in Chinatown, but I think that that's kind of a, I don't know, I think that New York is a kind of an outlier in general. Yeah, New York is sort of an example of different groups of people just happen to self-segregate anyway. Like, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, all the Italian people live here. I'm going to go with the rest of the people who understand me. Yeah. All of the Chinese people happen to live here. I'm going to be living with the people who understand me better. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's exactly. not like, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not like redlining. It's, I guess, what do they call it? It's, it's de facto segregation. Yes. Because, I mean, ultimately, I don't think that people seek to isolate themselves. They want to be you know with a community they want to look for communities well, it's so. almost exactly like joe had said earlier you would feel uncomfortable in most situations if you were in a place where everybody looked at you sideways and there weren't i mean not necessarily but there weren't many people who looked like you and and people who are going to freak out every time they see someone who looks different you know like that can get very tiring and not a lot of people would find comfort in living in an environment like that i i will say though like i mentioned before i think at least for a lot of east asian people and i know for me it's very much like this 
as an Asian person in the U.S., we didn't really necessarily get, like, side eyes or people treating us differently as much as it was that you just didn't exist. Like, nobody acted differently around you. They just... You just weren't there at all. Just, like, ignored, not seen or heard, kind of. Yeah, just... I mean, if you were, you know, in some place, you just were there, but nobody noticed you. The discrimination... I don't even know if I could call it discrimination per se, because people didn't treat me differently. They just didn't interact with me at all. And the only times that I was, like, explicitly treated, like, I guess in the same way that maybe, like, in this sort of explicit racism was when, you know, China was doing some shit or there was a pandemic, or sorry, I mean, SARS wasn't a pandemic, but, you know, SARS or other things where, you know, America needed to demonize China. Yeah. I have a question because I know I've spoken about this with Bronte. She brought it up a couple of days ago. She sent a really interesting picture because of our past president that served one term calling COVID-19, you know, China virus, et cetera, et cetera. There seems to be a thought that that is why there's an increase in, you know, hate crimes against Asian Americans as of late. Do you, I'm just going to ask you openly, do you feel that way? That it's because of Trump? Yes. Specifically because of Trump? Specifically because of Trump calling the China virus and also the virus originating in China. Um, no, I don't think that Trump is the cause well, I'm not really sure if I've explicitly had this conversation with all of you, but I mean, hating China is one of the few bipartisan issues that, you know, all all media outlets can agree that shitting on China is okay. Mm-hmm. When I see articles that are like, oh, where did all of this anti-Asian hate crime stuff come from it's like have you not seen the headlines from every news outlet casually demonizing china like of course people are going to have negative perceptions of asian people because westerners can't differentiate between chinese people and like korean people or japanese people so when you have all of this demonizing of China and Chinese people, all Asians are going to bear the brunt of that language. Yeah, like absolutely felt that because something I think about a lot is that when a culture or just like news in general begins to demonize a certain group, it's very dangerous because you'll end up taking away some of the humanity and human image of that group of people which then makes it so much easier for people to be hateful or violent towards those people because they are not fully recognized by people who would cause them harm. Demonization of people has happened, like, since the dawn of time. I mean, like, look at how, for a certain amount of time, Africans were perceived as subhuman. Like, oh, there's some flaw in their brains. 
And then that is used as one of the many reasons of justification for slavery. Just to pick one example out of the hat. And if people continued to, like as they have in the United States, demonize China, especially over this virus, it becomes fuel for people who are hateful and racist to justify their violent and discriminatory acts against these people. Right, yeah, totally. I guess the point that I'm trying to make more so is that the, I guess the rhetoric against China is not so much explicit racism as much as it is just kind of casual, like, snarky headlines and things like that. But nobody's necessarily calling out the New York Times for writing an article that's critical of China. It's, you know, totally fine for them to do that because, well, the Chinese government is doing all kinds of horrible things to, you know, the, the Uyghurs or building islands in the South China Sea. They're totally, it's totally in the right for them to criticize them. Yeah, it becomes dangerous because there are going to be people who can't disconnect the actions of the CCP, like the Chinese government, from the people, the actual living, breathing people of China or Chinese descent. And that's where it gets really dangerous about demonizing people. Yeah, definitely agree. And I would say that as it doesn't just affect Chinese people, at least in Western countries like the US, it affects all people who look Asian. I see that. I wanted to ask the both of you, but I guess since you did just touch on it, Bronte, more specifically, Joe, like, in the wake of this pandemic, which we've been in for a year, have you personally experienced or seen any change in behavior or sentiments in just your general, like, where you live, your communities, anything like outlandish or overtly racist i mean for myself i've only had one experience which was um like around last year like around this time i guess plus or minus a couple of weeks i like sniffed on the train like and uh a yd turned away from me um but that's the extent of it (laughs) yeah but that being said uh, i mean and, and obviously there's the whole thing of um i guess mask wearing as well which is a hugely contentious issue here but as someone who's lived through SARS, I guess as soon as like COVID started becoming a thing, my mom was like immediately on the phone with me asking me to like wear masks. And so me and uh, another one of my, um, I guess, friends at work, uh, who's like from Hong Kong originally, um, started wearing masks, uh, you know, fairly earlier uh, than, than other people, um, which meant that obviously I'd you know, be getting weird looks, you know, being a mask wearing person uh, before I guess mask wearing became the norm. But you know, I guess that's 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 very light, though I'd say, uh, as opposed because there has been violence here as well. Um, around the same time, around this time last year, uh, there was a Singaporean man who got assaulted, just in central London, and he had to have surgery, reconstructive surgery. Um, is is pretty bad. Um, so I mean, yeah, I, I guess Asian, like anti-Asian hate crime exists everywhere, really. I mean, should we talk about xenophobia next? Let's talk about xenophobia. I don't truthfully don't even know if I'm saying the word right, but xenophobia. But let's let's touch on xenophobia. Uh, I know you and Bronte obviously have some thoughts about it, and we 
I I'm here to get educated, to be quite honest with you. So let's let's hear it. Yeah, and and I think our our thoughts on this are really like they really stem from the fact that I guess we come from different Asian backgrounds, right? So um, Bronte is Chinese, I'm Filipino, and I'll tend to sometimes see China as a colonizer uh, in the East. And so I guess what I wanted to touch upon was I guess the difference between Sinophobia um, in the Western world versus the Eastern world. Because I think in the Western world, a large part of it is the fact that China is sort of this you know, invisible boogeyman. It's seen as sort of far and removed. And I think Sinophobia in the West tends to be born out of unfamiliarity more than anything. I know. Do, uh, do you agree with that, Bronte? Yeah, I would, I would say so. Yeah, I guess um, coming from like, my background as a Filipino, like China's influence on Asia and Southeast Asia is extremely familiar. So I think Sinophobia there um, comes from more from the fact that it's extremely familiar. For example, right, um, Southeast Asia has a huge Muslim population. And so all of the stuff that China's doing in the Xinjiang province for the Uyghur Muslims uh, sort of caused for, I guess, the, the Muslims in Asia to, there's been like an uptick in, anti, in anti-Chinese sentiment in the Muslim countries of Asia. Like there's a ton of stuff on social media um, sort of calling for, I guess, anti-Chinese policies to be implemented. And I've actually experienced like anti, I guess, ethnic Chinese sentiment. Well, not, I guess, anti, anti-Chinese sentiment rather. Um, so in, in like some countries like Hong Kong and Singapore, so I, I had friends in Shanghai, um, who were from Hong Kong, Singapore, who'd use the term mainlander as a sort of derogatory term for people from the mainland of China who were perceived as being more, I guess, less civilized almost. And so there's a lot of, uh, yeah, and it was something that was used like as a term, like a fair bit in school. But it, China's a huge place, right? I mean, that's just such an obvious statement. It's a huge place. So... I would wager to say that there's going to be differences between people from different regions of China. So it, it does scan that there would be these sentiments floating around the different regions. I guess uh, it's not necessarily different regions within China as much as it is the idea that China as a country um, is like evil in Asia. Right, Joe? Yeah. Oh, okay, so more specifically, like the all right, so the non-Chinese people's perception, like all yeah, non-Chinese, non-China countries in Asia generally share the same opinion of China. They all hate China. Well, yeah, when you've kind of been like dominating people around you for a really long time, it's hard to recover your PR. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of countries in Asia do demonize the Chinese. I think the Japanese call them like bioterrorists and they're like conspiracy theories about how the Chinese are infecting locals and like Muslims on purpose and stuff in Indonesia and Singapore. So it's absolutely something that exists. Is that like a contemporary idea right now? Like about COVID? Yeah, since COVID. wow, damn. It's news to me. Well, I mean, I think within Asia, but in the West too, I mean, Chinese people are seen as kind of responsible for covid yeah there's definitely some of those sentiments floating around so i don't know if i would say that there's some it's pretty widespread okay i'll use a stronger word people are really damn sure that china is responsible for this and i mean like eh, it's but it's also been a year of this pandemic and it's spread to like everywhere so 
Well, I guess the point that I'm trying to make with this is that there are lasting and very serious consequences, and the most recent one being the shooting in Atlanta. Very true. So it's it's not like an eh type situation. It's a when you allow rhetoric to spread this widely and be so acceptable the consequences of that can be very severe like the women who were murdered in the shooting weren't even chinese i want to interject because this is just some of the feedback that i had recently received joe bronte bronte joe what are steps people like harrison and i could take what are steps that white people can take in order to not have these consequences exist if at all possible and i'm not saying mm-hmm. sorry and, and i'm not saying that you need to give me a solution right here and now oh. but what is where what should we do you know what like how do we how do we at least take a step in the right direction in in terms of stopping this um i mean that's like a hard question to answer but I think recognizing the fact that ultimately the the reason why the shooting in Atlanta happened is because of white supremacy. To separate it and say like, oh, stop anti-Asian hate crimes is to kind of imply that the Asian hate crimes and the police brutality against black and brown people are somehow separate issues. They're not. Both are symptoms of white supremacy and the effects of white supremacy on people of color. They don't happen in a vacuum. I don't think that there is necessarily a solution that any one person can, you know, implement, but I think recognizing We have a common enemy, I guess. Interesting. The first step is always admitting that there's a problem, and we are still working on that. In the States, yeah, absolutely. Admitting that, or just like waking up to the fact that there is a white supremacy problem in this country. And I think you made a really great point with that, Bronte. Like making that connection, making that bridge between how hate crimes against Asian American, Pacific Islander Americans, and black and brown people in America, it's not the victim's fault. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of this white supremacist system that we are existing in. Yep. On a lighter note, um, just like to say, again, reiterate the point that uh, it's okay to let dumb Asians be dumb. <laughs> hmm. So that's how we make this better. Dumb Asian representation. That's, damn. <laughs> I guess that was a really difficult question to ask for, like, where we start fixing things, but I think you gave a really real answer. A really truthful answer. The realest answer is that there's no immediate answer. Yeah. All right. We're going to transition into my favorite part of all of this, because if you haven't noticed, I've been silent for the last 45 minutes because I am just taking this all in and learning everything right now. This is amazing. Bronte, Joe, I would like for you both to give me, right now, 
your favorite thing about each of your respective cultures? Joe, go first. <laughs> I'll go first. Yeah. Um, I guess what I love the most about being a Filipino is that our culture, because of being colonized by so many different countries, is sort of a mishmash of so many different cultures. Um, and I feel like the way, well, I mean, this, this sort of manifests itself in, in several places, uh, one of which is our food. Like our food is sort of a weird combination of so many different types of cuisines. So we were a Spanish colony for the longest time. And so we have a bunch of Spanish stews and everything, but then, you know, it's sort of Spanish stews with Asian ingredients. So it's sort of like a weird in between. So it's, it's very fusion, which I, which I love obviously. Um, and also we have our own, you know, flavors of like Chinese food. So I'm, so I'm Chinese Filipino and there was a wave of uh, immigration from China to the Philippines. Um, I forget when, but because of that, we sort of have our own, I guess, version of Filipino Chinese food uh, in the same way that you might have, you know, uh, American Chinese food, right? Like channel toes and orange chicken and all that. So it's, it's, yeah, it's it's really it's really delicious. It's not Chinese, but it's something that we have. But it's like a fusion kind of thing. That's so yeah. awesome because you know what? I forgot to even say this before Nick gave us this transition. My personal belief is that culturally we have so much more in common than we do different, and that's why we should all get along and have a good time. And from our Guyanese culture, we also had a portion of the population that was from China and Indo-Chinese cooking is like a like a pretty big thing and we have specifically a Caribbean Chinese fusion of like chomain and fried rice that's really great and I love making that it's just so ironic that you also have that fusion going on there too yeah and I mean I touched on like Filipino breakfasts earlier but um it's weird how you have former US colonies um sort of being really into spam so I personally love spam I know I know that Guam's also really into spam as well. I remember going to Guam at some point and then seeing all the spam dishes and thinking that was really, really interesting. So we have a lot of spam, spam fans. So like a, a typical, like a, a breakfast that I might find comfort in is, you know, plain rice, a fried egg, and then spam on the side, um, which is, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, something that I find wow. comfort in. So uh, yeah, <laughs> just everything, yeah, just everything being centered around rice. Yeah, yes. I co-sign with that idea. Rice is the best. Rice is great. Yeah. Rice for every meal. Yes. Breakfast rice? Yes. Oh, literally, yes. I love that. We had a moment. So um, when Bronte was visiting me in London, there was a whole thing where I didn't know how to make rice without a rice cooker. <laughs> because I'd... <laughs> That's the only way to make rice is in a rice cooker. Because, yeah, exactly. So wow. growing up with a rice cooker is having rice cookers with me. Have a rice cooker at home. <laughs> So like Rondé's Airbnb didn't have one. So having to make rice in a pot for like the first time and like failing miserably at it. Nobody has time <laughs> to watch a pot of rice. You just put that boy in the rice cooker. But what if you don't have one? Then do better. Then buy a rice cooker. <laughs> That's buy what I a rice cooker, exactly. The language in the Philippines as well is a weird mishmash of things as well. So we, we count, I guess, using Spanish numbers, but then we'll have words that we'll borrow from Bahasa. Um, so like, you know, Indonesian, Malaysian, and there are some English loan words as well. I mean, there's actually, if you Google this real quick, there is, um, there is a Wikipedia article in all the Filipino loan words, loan words that we have in, in Tagalog. And yeah, just the sheer number of cultures that we draw um, our language from. I mean, the main language spoken in the Philippines is actually uh, Taglish, 
which is a portmanteau of Tagalog and English. So no one really speaks pure Tagalog. Oh, wow. You'll sort of speak, tag- you'll speak Tagalog, but then you'll sort of intersperse um, random, like seemingly random, like English words and phrases in there. And what makes this more interesting is the fact that most Filipinos won't be able to speak pure Tagalog to you. It's sort of something that you do. Like there's a video on YouTube of uh, someone trying to, someone walking around the Philippines trying to get people to like, you know, hold a conversation with them in full Tagalog and people just struggling with it because they're used to just speaking Tagalish all the time. So, and the way I've sort of tried to deal with this and try to, you know, trying to fit in to, you know, Philippine, into, into the Philippines when I visit is sort of by doing the opposite by speaking English and then trying to splice in a few, you know, Tagalog words in there to sort of make it seem like, yeah, I belong here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm also Filipino. <laughs> So it just sounds like the Philippines is the pinnacle of fusion, like not only in cuisine, but like even your spoken language. Yeah, it really is. And I really do recommend it as a place to visit just on holiday, just because everyone does speak every language under the sun. Like most people will speak English. Um, You know, I've been at the beach and I've been accosted by, you know, street vendors in multiple languages. So firstly, assuming that I'm, you know, in English first, right? And then, you know, failing that, you know, I've been approached in Korean, in Chinese, some other languages too. Um, but it's more, it's more people, I guess, trying to hustle. But yeah, generally, most people will be bilingual. So you can get by in the Philippines just speaking English, which is what I unfortunately had to do. Oh, nice. Good to know. This list is incredible. I've been going through it. Joe, thank you for that. Now we have to flip it over to Bronte. What is your... I almost asked what your favorite dish is. <laughs> Bronte, what is your favorite aspect of your Chinese culture? If I have to say something, I'll say ch- Shanghainese food. Vouch. Yeah, Shanghainese food, really good. But I guess a culture is much more than its food, and I don't really know if. I could say that there was any other part that I particularly like. Mostly because, at least growing up in the U.S., firstly, being Asian is kind of like, like you. But then secondly, being Chinese is like extra you. So I don't really think that I've gotten to the point in my own personal journey where I have properly come to the, you know, part in my growth where I like being Chinese. Um, I think I'm fine with being Asian as, you know, I mean, I'm, I look Asian, but I, I don't know if other Chinese people could, can relate to this, but I think for a lot of Chinese people, or at least I know for me, as a Chinese person growing up in the U.S., I would rather be any other kind of Asian than Chinese. Well, that's a really honest answer you gave there. That was very introspective. Yep. <laughs> so, like, you just don't have, like, any, like, there is no, like, favorite aspect then because you haven't done that discovery, you would say? I don't know if it's not that I haven't done the discovery as much as... There isn't much to be, there isn't much that is socially acceptable to be proud of as a Chinese person. Damn. Well, you know what, Bronte? What is your favorite aspect of 
any part of your culture, not just that, like, as an American, as someone who lived in, like, Texas, like, dive deep, like, is there anything you really love? What are you passionate about? What makes you smile? (laughs) Oh my god, it makes me sound like some kind of curmudgeon. No, just, you know, anything. I mean, I am a curmudgeon, but... (laughs) That's fine, too, like, shit. No, I mean, obviously, there there are lots of things that I like about myself, but I don't know if anything can be specifically attributed to the fact that I'm Chinese. Well, no, it doesn't have to be. Like, just culturally, like, period. Any aspect of your culture. I'm saying, like, it doesn't have to be because you have heritage from China. Like, anything, you know? We started this podcast because we're at the, the intersection of full-on Guyanese culture and at the intersection of, of full-on American culture. You know, we're not we're not truly there on either aspect. We have favorite things about either culture, both cultures that, that combine to make something crazy. You know, is there anything along those lines, would you say? Yeah, Shanghainese food. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Done, done and done. I've never, I don't think I've ever had Shanghainese food. Like, can you name a dish? What? No, I'm, I'm. I mean, if you've had Salonbao, Salonbao is Chinese, so. Those are like dumplings, right? Yeah, soup dumplings. Oh, yes, I have had those oh. a few times at different spots in uh, Flushing. It's really cool. I love those. Yeah, it's it's Shanghainese. If anyone tries to tell you that it's not Shanghainese, they are salty that they didn't come up with something as good as Xiaolongbao. Ah. Xinjiangbao. <laughs> oh, but yeah, if you're a real one... That's the, that's the if you know, you know. You'll know right? that Xinjiangbao is better than Xiaolongbao. I haven't had Xinjiangbao that is as good as Xinjiangbao in Shanghai ever. Can you describe that dish? Like, what is that? It's like better Xiaolongbao. It's like Xiaolongbao except also fried and with a different kind of dough i guess it's like fried soup dumplings they have that (laughs) where do they do that at (laughs) it's it's a shanghainese thing man super good i don't know where to get them here though to be honest i've never had good ones in the u.s damn well damn all right now i'll never know (laughs) (laughs) all right well we'll (laughs) let's jump Jump straight into it then. Joe, since you went first last time, what would you say? And again, as it, it's fine to not answer if you don't have an answer. Just want to put that out there. But what's your least favorite thing about your culture? In the Philippines, I would say it's maybe the, I guess, the influence on of the, of the Catholic Church and society. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> Hey, wait, <laughs> same. No, sorry. Right? Sorry like, for cutting you off. <laughs> maybe though, right? Okay, but um, yeah. So, um, we've been we have a really poor track record um when it comes to you know family planning and reproductive health, and that's just because the Catholic Church has such a huge influence on like our society. So yeah, and it's it's actually something that my family's had to deal with moving when we when, when we did move back to the Philippines. So I mean, going to church was actually something that we did like on a weekly basis like throughout all of the countries that we lived in um until we moved back to the philippines and it sort of became weird just seeing how overtly religious everyone was and so we actually stopped going to church um when we moved to the philippines 
to sort of drive this point home, like there's a huge church going culture in the Philippines uh, to, to the extent where most like shopping malls like will have a chapel and a typical like Saturday or Sunday might be to, you know, go to the mall with your family. Uh, you'll go to church in the chapel in the mall, which will be like packed, by the way. Um, and then you'll like have dinner, like, you know, do your shopping after. Um, so, yeah, Catholicism is like really ingrained into Filipino society. So I can get great deals and get right with God all in one trip. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of great, but it's also not great for all those other reasons and all the issues <laughs> with the Catholic Church that we won't get into, I think, mm. now. So it's it's good and bad, but it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating, I would say. Um, yeah, just seeing, I guess, how difficult it is for people to get you know access to reproductive health. Yeah, that's that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, on a lighter note as well, um, <laughs> the thing that I really did not like about the Philippines is the traffic. So I mean, you think traffic in like LA or whatever might be bad in the Philippines? Like it is, it is awful. Like there there are drives that should take you like fifteen minutes that might take you upwards to three or four hours. Like, I have been, like, three hours late to school what? before because of traffic. Do you ever just get out and walk? Or? <laughs> At that point, just walk, honestly. But it's so hot, though, so I don't know. It's, you know, air-conditioned air car uh -huh. versus, like, walking to school. Yeah, so we have a really weird system where, depending on, like, the number on the on your license plate, on the, the last number, I think, of your license plate, like, you, you might be permitted to drive on certain days, so... Um, there's like a whole system where like cars with certain license plates can drive on certain days. So for instance, like, uh, I don't know what the rule is exactly, but it might be like, if you have like a one or something, maybe you're only allowed to, you're not allowed to drive on Mondays, but you can drive for the rest of the week. But I mean, most Filipinos will, well, the Filipinos that can will circumvent this by just having two cars. Oh my God. And so that's, <laughs> yeah. And so the problem isn't really solved and there's just traffic everywhere. Yeah, so I learned so I learned how to drive in the Philippines, and because of that, I'm used to like driving very very slowly, you know, through traffic, you know, which is nice and safe. So whenever I visit my family in the U.S. and then we go on all these highways and everything, it's just terrifying just seeing all these cars travel extremely fast. It's okay, Joe. I'll protect you. Well, yeah, that's what you're for, because I can't <laughs> drive. Well, I can technically, but I, I don't know if I'd want to. This is like the most entertaining social studies class i've ever been yeah, in seriously this is insane before we pass the torch to bronte there's one thing i need to say about what joe said catholicism has been used as a tool of the colonizers for a long time there's nothing wrong necessarily with subscribing to the belief system if that's what gives you your spiritual peace that's fine but you also should be aware of how the Catholic Church has been used to oppress many different groups of people around the world for a long time. And they're tax exempt, which just Yo, makes that no drives sense to me, me crazy. What? Like, y'all have the <laughs> most real estate on the planet and you don't pay any. So, Bronte, let's, <laughs> let's move on because I can hear Harrison's heated about this. <laughs> Bronte, let's, let's just hear your, your least favorite thing about Chinese culture or American culture for that matter because that is a part of your identity as well. I think the most obvious answer actually am I going to get thrown into like a like Chinese jail for this? <laughs> I don't uh, know. Bonk. The CCP. That would yeah, be right? spicy. I'm like I'm like <laughs> the the CCP denied my request to get our podcast in China. So I think you're good. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, well, the obvious answer, I guess, is like the CCP. <laughs> but 
less obvious answer, maybe also traffic, but mostly because driving in Shanghai is just like a lawless wasteland. Mm. Like there are traffic signals. They exist. Nobody follows them. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. That's funny. Sorry about that. So <laughs> my mom learned to drive in Switzerland, and so you know, obviously there, it's extremely by the letter. So um, you have to know the rules. Everyone follows the rules. Um, whereas I learned to drive in the Philippines, which is essentially yeah, it's just chaos. Essentially, it's just like who's willing to take the most risks, you know, in merging. I mean, it's like they don't want to hit you, so just go for exactly. it. Exactly. Like my it's grandpa about... has literally said that to me in the car. He's like, "Just cut in front of them. They don't want to hit you. <laughs> they don't want you to hit them." Yeah, it's like, literally like Whoa. you have a, or it's like you know, you have a bigger car. Like, just go for it, right? What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and so because of that, I was actually the better driver than my mom uh, in the Philippines, just because I never learned the rules in the first place. So you know, I could adapt better to that. Whereas she'd be constantly frustrated by people not following the rules where it's like yeah i mean what did you expect i mean the passing the driver exam in shanghai is actually so hard like you have to get a really high score you have to get a 90 on the exam to pass so you need to know the rules you need to know them and people still don't follow them <laughs> so yeah as a person in the philippines where you can actually just pay to get a driver's license and just bypass the exam. Damn, what nice. What can't you buy in the Philippines? What is going on? Here? Which admittedly, which admittedly I did. So, you know, <laughs> unethical. Wow. Unethical, but also but also, right, in defense of myself, right? One, I could drive. Um and two, the line was really really long. So, it was much easier to just pay to say less. Say less I'm on your side. <laughs> <laughs> The Philippines is truly a lawless. It was the weirdest thing, actually. So in the written exam, like, I actually don't speak Tagalog either. Um, well, I can understand it. But, like, um, in the written test, I basically had some guy mark all the answers for me with his thumb. So, like, he, would, he like, sort of made a mark with his, uh, with his thumbnail on all the right answers in the multiple choice questions <laughs> so that I could pass it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, what? like, was it, like, a oh testing God. room? Like, what, was this, like, an... Yeah, in the, t in, the, in the testing room. So everyone's in on it, basically. What? So they, like, do that, and then they give you the paper, and then you just, you know, circle the right answers, and then give it back to them. What is this lawlessness? And then they say, well done, you know, you've, you've passed. <laughs> and you can drive. So there are, yeah, I mean, there, there are tons of kids who, like, do this just to get IDs as well, who can actually drive. Um, but because no one knows the rules or follows them anyway, it... Somehow works. It just doesn't matter. Just, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Love that. Guns too. Lots oh. of guns. Now I really want to go to the Philippines. I I was sold honestly when Joe told us that a, a traditional breakfast is rice, spam, and egg. I love that. It's a great meal. Oh yeah, it's like a whole like species. It's a whole like I guess corporal collection of breakfasts. So there's a so eat log means egg. So spam eat log is like rice and egg and spam, but you also have, you know, bacon. So eat log means egg. So you have like um, spam si log, which means like rice and egg and spam. You'll have like bacon si log, which is bacon, egg and rice. Um, and then there is also like tapas si log, which is a kind of a kind of beef dish, um, which will have like a, basically it's something, some, some form of like meat or something savory with a fried egg and rice. And that is that is what breakfast is, and what breakfast has historically been for me growing up. 
That's Amazing. delicious. I, I love gonna, that, dude. I think that savory be. breakfast is so underrated in the United States. And if more Americans tried like having a savory breakfast instead of like a really sugary one, they would realize that like, like what have you been eating for so long? And everybody else in the world is right. like on the right wavelength. Right. Harrison, do you remember when we were in Japan and we got breakfast together that one time and it just had... Yeah, I, I remember what I got. I got uh, oh, a bowl of get? rice with grilled eel and like pickled vegetables on the side. It was amazing. <laughs> I had something similar. I think I had salmon instead of eel. But the feeling that we talked about the entire way back to the uh, hotel was that, oh, that breakfast? I'm so satisfied and I have energy for the day. <laughs> Warm breakfasts. That's like a I care about my body breakfast. <laughs> instead of eating a bowl of sugar sweetened milk with more sugar in it like that what is that it's amazing slow release carbs capitalism (laughs) yeah (laughs) sure it's big dairy coming to get you (laughs) big dairy i mean you're you're probably right (laughs) no it's like the food industries in the states have like this crazy stranglehold on like like i don't even want to get into it nick probably knows more about this topic than i do but that's that's literally a whole other episode we can talk about how the food pyramid and and how the USDA is racist, but that is not the conversation for today. Food pyramid is racist. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> you can actually get rice in uh, McDonald's in the Philippines. So oh, you can actually, like these hot crazy. breakfasts, like McDonald's, yeah. So um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Jollibee. I've heard yeah. of it. Hell Never yeah. Eaten there. Yeah. The chicken, the chicken spot, The right? chicken, yeah. Um, so it's a Filipino fast food restaurant, um, famous for their fried chicken, and it's sort of the, yeah, it's, it's the most popular fast food place in the Philippines. Um, and they do fried chicken and they do Filipino spaghetti, which is basically spaghetti, but bad on purpose, but then it's delicious. So <laughs> it's like sweet, it's, it's, it's sweet spaghetti, essentially, with like noodles that aren't really substantial. But yeah, you can get like, a, you know, a, so Jollibee do like a, they do like a meal deal where you get like a, you know, you can get like a fried chicken and then some rice on the side. And that'll be like something that you can get from Jollibee and to compete McDonald's has, have to, has had to offer that as well. So you can get like fried chicken and rice at McDonald's or like a Filipino spaghetti at McDonald's. And uh, yeah, Filipino spaghetti is a, it's a contentious one. I think uh, Bronson and I had a conversation about that because one of her friends didn't like Filipino spaghetti, but I think it's amazing. But it's amazing because it's like not good. Well, what exactly goes into a Filipino spaghetti? So hot dogs, one. Oh. So like just your... <laughs> Damn. It's cursed. It just looks cursed. Just processed hot dogs. It's, it's already ruined. Okay, <laughs> keep going. It's cursed. And then like we add, yeah, and then just like cheddar as well as the choice of cheese. Oh. Um, and like tomato sauce, um, but like sweet tomato sauce as well. Um, it's usually sweetened with like you know either like ketchup or sugar. Oh my! God. So not sure why Bronte doesn't like it because she likes ketchup too much. This but... sounds like it was des- designed for Americans. This sounds like me waking up at three a.m. and making a dish in the dark. Yeah, it's somehow coming out well. Maybe that's why. Yeah, but it's it is it is actually incredible. But it's only incredible when it's bad. Like I've been to a Jollibee in Singapore and then I had Filipino spaghetti there. Um, but then they use like real meat. I was like, what's going on? What are you guys trying to do? Like, stop trying to be spaghetti. Like, I came here to have I came here to have Filipino spaghetti. So, you know, give me what I want. You heard it here first. Hot dogs are not real meat. Stop boiling it in front of me. Oh. 
I will not take kindly to it. And I will take it as an act of discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What? Only unboiled hot dogs in this household. Wait, no, that's not what I'm <laughs> Only unboiled hot dogs. You heard it here first. Nah. Nick only eats unboiled hot when, dogs. Yeah, I can Chills. I can confirm. No, Nick likes his hot From dogs cooked uh, until they're completely black. I can confirm. <laughs> I know this. I've seen it live in action. That's my special dish. I call it uh, the midnight glizzy. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> I hope you cut this. I'm leaving this in. Keep it in. <laughs> Keep it in. I'm, I'm actually naming this episode The Midnight Glizzy. No, no one will listen to it. <laughs> Nobody will know what this is about. No, everyone will listen to it. Just all the wrong people will listen to it. And then they'll get to talk about oh. <laughs> Call it The Asian Midnight American. Glizzy. There's an Asian girl. Oh like... my god. <laughs> all right. Well, I've said this many times before, but I don't think it's ever been more true than right now. We have learned so much today. To the point where I'm literally going to have to write some of this stuff down because it's incredible. I, we've gotten perspectives from from um, Bronte and Joe. Thank you so much for being on this show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to to speak about this because, again, we just learned so much. I would like to open this up to to Bronte and Joe first. Do you have any closing remarks? Do you have anything else you'd like to say just to get out on the record? Yes. I do. It was totally poggers for nope. you to have me nope. on the podcast today. Oh, Stop. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm uh jump off my balcony now. So uh it's, it's really nice. I'm hip. Okay, I'm hip. <laughs> that was so poggers, Bronte. Oh my god, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that somebody appreciates me. Wow, pog you. <laughs> what? Pog you. I refuse to define the word poggers on this podcast. Go look it up. I'm not talking about it anymore. Joe. Wow, weird Thank champ. you so much for being... <laughs> Stop! <laughs> Joe, if you have anything you'd like to say, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, try try Filipino spaghetti. You might like it. You should like it. As a person. If you have taste buds. Wow. I almost wish you said poggers. Okay. <laughs> I, I really wanted to. I really wanted to. Oh, man. No, no, no. I'm totally kidding. Thank you both so much for being here. If either of you have anything, any resources, any creative projects you're currently working on, anything you'd like to plug, I'd love to hear that as well. I'm going to make an ASMR Insta oh. for keyboards. So, Ooh. yeah. Sensual. Watch out for that. Oh, and also... um. Making an OnlyFans called Only Hands. Oh, really? <laughs> hmm. That's cool. That's cool. I'm with that. And the the OnlyFans is going to be ASMR as well. Yeah. Yes. Sensual sensual ASMR. This is oh, we we support I, it. We love to see it, honestly. <laughs> and the the education just never stops. Joe, if you have anything creative. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to plug so yeah happy to leave it here all right well hey here we are at the end of yet another episode of the brown not black podcast thank you so much for rocking with us and here we go harrison do you have any closing remarks i do actually we would love to hear them to quote one of my favorite 
English novelists Charlotte Bronte? I'd like to say, I am neither a man nor a woman, but an author. That was profound. Oh, thanks. I didn't write it. Charlotte Bronte did. But you said it, you said it really well, though. So. Oh, thank you. So, oh, good thanks, enough. guys. Oh, nice. Validation station. And there it goes. Okay. So, thank you for rocking with us once again. We'll see you on the next episode.